Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the privilege of reading our scripture passage today, which is going to be Revelation 2, 18 through 29. It'll be on page 966 of your pew Bible, and it'll be on the screen as well. Revelation 2, starting in 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, and your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. As when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's Word. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. I've been away for a little while, uh, for the last month, as my wife and I have been welcoming our newborn daughter. And uh, we've been so glad about that. We've been so appreciative of many of you who've brought meals to us. And I would just say thank you on behalf of so many of us who've been having children. And uh, our church has been caring for us well, and and we're thankful. Um, If you would turn in Revelation, if you haven't already, uh, in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 966. Uh, And we are going to sit with the passage that Colton just read. And as you can imagine, as he just read it, we desperately need the Lord to show us what it means to speak to us. And so let's pray together. Let's bow before him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We honor you for giving it to us. We submit to it. Teach us to listen Teach us and give us ears to hear you when you speak. Soften our hearts. Expose in us what we do not see. Convict us of the sin that we don't want to leave. Encourage us and lead us into real life in you. And Lord, as James says in chapter 3, verse 1, that you will judge with greater strictness those who teach your word. Have mercy on me as I tremble before a passage like this. 
And if there are things that are not from you, Lord, cause them to be forgotten. But if there are things that are from you, that are in step with your word, that are true, Lord, drive them deep into our hearts and make them fruitful for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So about 10 years ago, a dear person in my life was diagnosed with cancer. A disease had been growing in secret, a disease that threatened not just his well-being, but his life. And maybe some of you have had close encounters with cancer, whether in yourself or in a loved one. Cancer is dreadful, as many of us know, and deadly. And thus, treatment for it is swift, is severe, and very invasive, right? A surgeon's knife, chemotherapy, radiation, treatments that often pummel the body with harm. Why? To kill the disease. And so that the disease might not kill the person. The immediate harm of the treatment does not reflect sadism, the sadism of the surgeon or of the doctor. Rather, it reflects the severity of the disease. And when seen rightly, the goodness of the doctor and the one who gives it. This letter to the church in Thyatira may be the most severe in those that we've been looking at. Severe. The church in Thyatira was very similar to a cancer patient. And the way in which Christ deals with them matches their condition. These are the words of Jesus to Thyatira. And what Jesus says reveals who he is. And so who is Jesus according to this letter? We get a glimpse in verse 18. Look in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze. He offers those two images taken from chapter 1 to describe himself, and these are tethered to what he's about to say in this text. They inform what he does to the church in Thyatira. And as the Son of God, Jesus does three things. Number one, Jesus sees. Two, Jesus judges. And three, Jesus promises. Number one, Jesus sees. Look in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Right off the bat, even as later on this letter is going to be incredibly severe, what does he start with? He begins his letter by affirming the church for their virtuous living. And what's going on in their life together right now is better than what they had at the beginning. They're growing. They're bearing the fruit of repentance and the fruit of the Spirit. They're serving the body of Christ sacrificially. They're trusting in Jesus in the midst of suffering. They're steadfast and patient in affliction. 
They're becoming more like Jesus together. And Jesus sees that, and he names it. And he affirms the living love that he sees in the church in Thyatira. Notice that he starts with encouragement. He's eager to see the good in them and speak into it and build them up. Just like Paul in a lot of his letters. Then he moves to rebuke in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The church was tolerating suffering. They were enduring suffering, and yet they were also tolerating false teaching that was leading the congregation into sin. They're like a fit marathon runner who can run a record time in the marathon and then gets diagnosed with cancer. Still incredibly fit, but is dying on the inside. There's a cancer, a sickness, a disease in them that's threatening their life. And that sickness was that woman Jezebel which was not necessarily her actual name, but is a clear allusion to another Jezebel that we find in 1 Kings 18. Queen Jezebel, who had married Ahab, who was the king of Israel, and she lured God's people away from worshiping Yahweh to worship false gods, specifically Baal. And the worship of Baal, the the worship services of Baal, were marked most notably by debauchery, specifically sexual morality of all kinds, men with women, men with men, women with women, prostitution, all manner of sexual perversion. Sex is sacred to God. And it was and is and always will be set apart for the covenantal marriage between one man and one woman, within which it is beautiful and holy. Furthermore, marriage reflects the relationship that God has with his people. Israel, again and again, is referred to as God's spouse. The church is the bride of Christ. The prophets in the Old Testament use the image of adultery to talk about idolatry. To worship other gods is to to cheat on God. And that's exactly what the Jezebel in Thyatira was doing. As a self-appointed prophetess, she was claiming to speak for God, but was seducing the church to assimilate to the culture's idolatry. There were two primary idolatries, idols in Thyatira. There were money and sex. And they were nearly one and the same together. The city was renowned for its trade guilds. To thrive in trade, one had to participate in the festivals devoted to the city's various deities that were tethered to each trade guild 
which inevitably included eating food sacrificed to idols and engaging in sexual immorality, which meant having sex with whoever you needed to in order to get in with the right people. And that may have been the reason why her teaching gained so much traction in the church. It was financially advantageous. Sexual morality in the city had not just become normal, but essential to its prosperity. And is this not the state of our culture, as Phil mentioned earlier in his prayer? In our society, sex is king. To our culture, sex is not something to be cherished in the safe setting of marriage, but something to be bought and sold or stolen. Something to be flaunted flippantly. You can't watch a Netflix original movie or TV show without having to endure and be inundated by sexually explicit scenes. You can barely drive down the highway without seeing women sexually objectified on billboards. And in a matter of seconds, anyone who has access to the internet has access to pornography. Immediately. And pornography is one of the leading industries in our world today. It is a $97 billion industry worldwide. And in a month, it has one of the primary and predominant pornographic websites takes in more traffic than Twitter, Netflix, and Amazon put together. Surely, sex is king. And furthermore, sexuality is no longer something that's defined by our maker, but it's defined by whoever wants to define it however they want to define it. Sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, whether that is heterosexual, whether that is homosexual, is considered applaudable in our culture. And this posture towards sexuality has not only become commonplace in our culture, but for some Christians, it's become compatible with what the Bible has to say about it. It is not compatible with what the Bible has to say about it. We see that here. And I know that I'm walking and, and God and Jesus is walking into a delicate conversation here. A conversation and a subject that might unsettle some of us. And it really indeed requires a robust conversation to talk about sexuality And so let me say, if you would like to dialogue more about these things, please come and talk to me, come and talk to any of our pastor elders. We would love to dialogue with you. We'd love to talk with you more, but this is weighty. We feel that. It's very quiet in this room right now. More quiet than normal, I could hear it. It's weighty, we feel that. And Jesus shows us how weighty it is. We've seen how Jesus sees. Number two, Jesus judges. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Jesus is severe toward Jezebel and her followers. Jesus is not just a gentle savior, but as the son of God, he's also the judge of all the earth. He's perfectly merciful, and he's perfectly just. And his mercy isn't less right than his justice. He knows the truth, all of it, and he always does what is right about it. And in this case, what is right is throwing Jezebel on her sickbed. She's a cancer that Christ is prepared to cut out of his bride. Jesus is putting an end to Jezebel masquerading as his mouthpiece and degrading his name. Jezebel's been stealing his wife. And the living Jesus says enough is enough. He's protecting his bride here. He's loving her by clearing away the temptation to commit adultery with other gods. And God's wrath always, in some manner, reveals his love. The things that he hates are the things that assault what he loves. He hates murder. Why? Because he loves life. He hates lies and falsehood and deceit. Why? Because he loves the truth. And he hates sexual morality because he loves the sacred sexual union of a man and a woman in marriage, which may be the most radiant and clear image of Christ's love for his church, his bride. He hates sexual morality because it distorts God's good gift into a means of objectifying another person rather than a means of giving your whole self to your spouse in committed purity, and love. He hates sexual morality because it turns something that was meant to bring us deeper into communion with God, along with our spouse, into something that separates us from Christ, alienates us, and brings us only shame and death. The severity of Christ's punishment for Jezebel rises out of the severity of Christ's love for his bride and his commitment to her fidelity to him. And this Jezebel is a foreshadow of what we're going to see in Revelation 18. Did I just lose my mind? In Revelation 18, we see the great prostitute being struck down. And there we read that that is the nation of Babylon. So we see Jezebel as this type of, throughout the whole Bible. There's the Jezebel in 1 Kings 18. There's this Jezebel in Thyatira. And then there's going to be the ultimate Jezebel in Revelation 18 that Christ is going to have his way with. And what's the outcome of Christ's judgment when he brings it about? Verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. 
all the churches, not just Thyatira, all the churches, because all the churches are reading all of these letters, are going to know that Jesus has flaming eyes, hot and bright, which, with which he examines and inspects their every belief, every intention, and every practice, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He searches to see, and he sees to expose, and he exposes to sift the churches. I'm going to fix my mic here really quick. In Hebrews 4.13, we read, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We ourselves are inescapably laid bare before him. He sees through our brightest facades and into the darkest corners of our lives, into the hidden pathways of our hearts, a lot of times the things that we do not see. There is no place that he does not see. There's nothing that he does not know. He knows every deed we have ever done, every thought we have ever thought, and we're accountable to him for all of it. The church in Thyatira was, and so are we. God's lavish, unmerited, reviving, saving, eternal grace does not free us from being accountable to the Lord Jesus. What we do matters before God. What I do matters to God. The sin that I have tolerated in my life, the love that I have left on my to-do list, matters before the living God. And so what do we do? We cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 139. We say, search me. Oh God, know my heart. That's what the redeemed heart cries out before the Lord. Search me, know me, try me, and see if there's a grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. In Christ, we can pray such a prayer because we know that he's for us. And any searching that he does is for our good, to rid us of the cancer of sin. And if we are his, if we've been given a new heart, we want to be rid of the cancer of sin. And if we don't want to be rid of the cancer of sin, then we need to sit with that. And consider the, the state of our souls but as he reveals the ways that we've turned away from him, the idolatry we have in our lives and in our hearts, we are invited to return. We have confidence that he'll receive us. Maybe the most astounding part of this passage is in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. What? I gave her time to repent. Jesus reserved a wide open door to a woman who was teaching the deep things of Satan, he says. And she gives the same open door to us. 
And as he exposes and sifts through our secrets, he calls us into the light. And John, the same author of the book of Revelation, says in his first epistle, in chapter 1, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze, he cleanses us from all sin. The door is open wide for all of those who would receive the penetrating and exposing gaze of Jesus and turn to him and trust him and seek to walk with him. The light of Jesus is available to us today. And I want to get really practical here. These things, as Phil was mentioning, these things are not just out there. They are totally in here. If you are caught in pornography, run like your life depends on it. Confess to a brother or sister. Walk in the light and see and find the cleansing power of the living Jesus. Talk to me. Talk to one of our pastor elders. If you're a student, talk to one of the student ministry volunteers. If you're a woman, and don't feel comfortable talking to a pastor elder. There's many women in our church, our women's ministry leadership team that would love to talk with you. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, come into the light. Husbands and wives, if you're drawn away from your spouse in any way, if you've come to the point of apathy even, or if you've been drawn away to, to various kinds of sin, maybe lust, even if it seems small, turn toward your spouse. Turn toward the Lord. Pursue your spouse. Talk about the state of your marriage. Draw near. If there's unresolved conflict, resolve it for the sake of your marriage. Adultery is a hundred small choices. Generally not one. If you're dealing with same-sex attraction, which, if the statistics are right, there is going to be somebody that comes to church this morning that's going to be walking with the difficult, agonizing experience of same-sex attraction, and we want to walk with you. Please, talk to someone. I personally would love to talk with you. If you're a woman, we would love to connect you with a woman in our church to dialogue with about these things. And if you're dealing with same-sex attraction and you are talking with someone, we honor you for your courage, desire to walk with God's people. If you've been on the receiving end of sexual morality, if you've been sexually abused, whether that's in your distant past, whether that's in your present, talk to someone. Bring that out into the light. See that the Lord wants to heal that. We want to walk with you or we want to connect with you with someone who's equipped to do so. We need to be a church that is eager to recognize that these things are not just out there but in here and eager to walk and welcome the weak, wounded, and wayward that we might enjoy the living Jesus rather than the fleeting temptations of sexual morality. We might be transformed into his likeness. Shame says to hide these things. 
Shame says, I can handle it on my own. We cannot handle these things on our own. On our own, they only billow out of control. But Jesus invites us into the light to experience his full forgiveness, acceptance, and cleansing, which very well might burn on the front end. But the burn that you're going to experience is worth it because it will ultimately bring new life. Why? Because Jesus himself was laid on a sick bed. The sick bed of sin on the cross. Struck dead, facing the judgment for the sin of the world that we might be healed. This is the open door that was available for those in Thyatira who were abiding by the teaching of Jezebel. And the call to the rest of the church is to persevere in the midst of a culture a pagan culture without assimilating to it. And Christ's promise is grand if they succeed. So Jesus sees, he judges, and he promises. In verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. What is, what is the one who, who is the one who conquers? The one who conquers is the one who does not compromise the truth of God in the midst of a culture fraught with idolatry and fraught with falsehood. The one who conquers faithfully endures pain and persecution for the sake of Christ. The one who conquers is the one who walks in daily repentance and faith. Conquering, according to Jesus, is not thrusting a sword into the side of our enemies, but standing firm on God's promises and living a life of sacrificial love for his people in the world. And Christ, who stands over all the nations, with all the nations under his feet of burnished bronze, will give the one who conquers authority over the nations. What does that mean? Those who conquer will inherit the earth, as we read Jesus saying in Matthew 5. They will rule it as Adam and Eve always were meant to rule it, to be fruitful and multiply in the sexual union of marriage and to exercise dominion over the earth that they might bless and be a blessing to the nations. And what else does he promise in verse 28? And I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? In that period of time, the morning star referred to Venus. The reason why it bore that name is because when Venus rose in the night sky, it meant that the sun was soon to follow. It was a signal in the night sky that morning was coming. And Jesus, at the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 22, says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is the morning star. And he will give himself to those that will faithfully persevere in the midst of a culture fraught with idolatry and ultimately reach the end 
the finish line. He will do so. He will give himself when he comes, when he returns, and his return will proclaim the day of the Lord, the morning of the Lord, when all will be exposed. And all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And for those outside of Christ, for those who have refused to repent, as Jezebel did, for those who have held on and tolerated these sins that have been kept in secret, this day will be one of shame and death. But for those who are in Christ, that have walked in repentance, turning back to him again and again, and even as we're walking and falling into sin, we're leaning into Jesus and finding the transformation that comes by walking in the light. For those who are walking in such a way, it will be one of glory and fulfillment of all the things that we've hoped for, specifically the hope that our bridegroom would come and that we would be his forever and sit together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we wait for that day of the morning star, we welcome his all-seeing eye, his searching eye, and we invite him to sift us in love, to remove the cancer of sin and to beautify us, his bride, to wash us with the word and enable us to resist adultery against the Lord but to stand firm in the face of temptation in our hearts and in our culture. So we're going to do something unique following the sermon here. Uh, the band is going to come up, and we're going to, they're going to play and sing a song called Judge of the Secrets. It's written by Sovereign Grace Music, and it's a wonderful song that very much goes hand in hand with what uh, we've been sitting with here. And, and I just want to urge you to use this time as a time of reflection and prayer, contemplation, an opportunity to, to ask God. Maybe you turn to Psalm 139. You take a look at it. Ask God, search me, know me, try me. See if there's, see if there's any sin that I don't see, that I've tolerated. And lead me into life? What's the sin that you've tolerated? What's the love that you've left on your to-do list? What are the things that are thriving in secret? The shame that you've locked up in the basement of your soul. And it's very, very likely that some of you, over the course of this sermon, have had things come into your mind, that you've been convicted by the Lord, and you very well might feel this resistance. Oh, that'd be painful to talk to somebody about. And I would just urge you, if God is leading you into confession, into honest dialogue with somebody, somebody you know, a pastor, don't deny it. Don't stuff it away. Be willing to walk into the light and experience the searing and soothing love of the living Jesus. And maybe you might be dealing with something, an idolatry that doesn't relate to sexual morality. Ways that you have compromised the truth, 
compromised righteousness in your life, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your family, in your outside relationships. Respond to his leading. Respond to his conviction. So we're going to have the the band come back up and and just consider that as we um, sit with this song. Lord, uh, we humble ourselves before you. We tremble before you. You who are the judge over all the earth and even the judge over your people. And that's good news, Lord, because we want to be rid of the cancer of sin. We want your conviction. We want you to sift us and search us and expose what you want to expose. You might change us, that we might know you and taste and see that you are good and that you might be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.